This is Medieval Death Trip for Saturday, June 22nd, 2019. Episode 74, concerning bad bishops, buried treasure, and an unchaste priest. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. In May, we had a theme of moralizing tales, with the Norse-slash-Christian vision of heaven and hell, and the evolving epimythia of the fable of the mouse and the frog. We're continuing in that vein this month, as we're going to see some saints literally putting the fear of God into some ethically challenged individuals, not by setting them a good example, nor even by preaching a stern and exhortative sermon. No, these saints strike these sinners down with supernatural afflictions. We've seen this many times before on this show, um, but it's one of those things that I still experience, uh, maybe naively, a little bit of cognitive dissonance with. It feels transgressive. It seems like the kind of thing you wouldn't find addressed much in Christian Sunday schools today. It doesn't seem to sit well beside God is love or Jesus loves the little children and the general positivity that was my experience of church in the last couple of decades of the 20th century. But then, my experience was with staunchly middle-class, white American Episcopal and Methodist congregations, and later Catholic ones, uh, and the Catholics perhaps put a bit more emphasis on sin and confession and feeling guilty for causing Christ's sufferings than the mainline Protestant sermons did, but it was all still at least largely focused on the idea of self-improvement and forgiveness rather than rejoicing in God destroying one's enemies. Even growing up around a lot of Southern Baptists, whose national church leaders sure seem to spend a lot of time issuing condemnations of whole groups of people for lifestyles and sexualities and such, and anticipating the end times, I never got the impression from the Baptists I knew and was friends with that this is what they were getting from their pulpit every week. They could maybe get a bit riled up about protecting prayer in schools, uh, and that hinted at a deeper sense of persecution by godless authorities, uh, a sentiment that seems much more front and center in the rhetoric these days. But for the most part, talk was about church sports leagues and potlucks and fundraisers and that kind of thing. Looking around at the culture today, and especially the kinds of religious discourse that get amplified on the internet— I'm left wondering whether my childhood church-going was the exception, some sheltered artifact of a middle-class upbringing. Maybe American Christians, or even global Christians, wouldn't react to a scene of a saint bringing a curse down upon a person with the surprise and incredulity I felt when I first encountered a story like this, and which I've imagined most other readers would similarly feel. But why should they be surprised? This goes right back to the roots— The flood, Lot's wife, the plagues on the Egyptians, the devastation that accompanies the Ark of the Covenant, even when it comes back into the hands of the Israelites, as we heard back in February's first episode. And it's not just limited to the angry Old Testament God. There's the cursing of the fig tree in Matthew. In Acts of the Apostles, you have King Herod dying a gangrenous death. You also have the husband and wife pair of new Christians who keep just a little bit of money for themselves instead of giving it all over to the apostolic community, and who are both struck dead after Peter reveals their sin. And, by the way, I couldn't help but notice that in my admittedly brief survey of online commentaries on this story, most of the American pastors writing about it seemed at pains to emphasize that the couple's sin was 
lying about how much money they were giving to the church rather than in keeping some private property for themselves apart from the communal holdings. You know, the story can't possibly be critical of keeping private wealth. Uh, That would be communist. So no, it must just be about transparency and tithing. Anyway, in the scriptural examples of these punishments, the lines of agency are a bit blurry, other than Jesus himself cursing the fig tree. Peter doesn't point his staff at Ananias and Sapphira and strike them down with a lightning bolt. It does feel a bit more like God doing it in front of witnesses. As you move into early and medieval hagiography, agency seems to rest a lot more in the hands of the saint. It feels less like God is delivering some death or affliction in order to protect the saint or validate their preaching, and more like God has invested the saint with supernatural sinner-blasting powers. You can feel a kind of shifting of assumptions over from, I will call upon God to perform a miracle to prove that what I'm saying is true, to, because I've been blessed by God, I will work these wonders and manifest his power. I would assume that's a product of how Christianity is taken up and understood by European pagan communities, um, but this is all a bit outside my areas of expertise. I did, however, want to bring in one other expert opinion before we get to our text. The issue of divine curses and whether they're justified is addressed by, of course, Thomas Aquinas, because there's little he leaves unaddressed. In the second part of the second part of his Summa Theologiae, he takes up the issue of cursing, or malediction, in question 76. Under the heading, Whether it is lawful to curse anyone, the opposing view, the objections to the idea of lawful or just curses, all speak in that Sunday school voice of positivity that I imagined. They state things like, Further, he that curses another would seem to wish him some evil, either of fault or of punishment, since a curse appears to be a kind of imprecation. But it is not lawful to wish ill to anyone. Indeed, we are bound to pray that all may be delivered from evil. Therefore, it is unlawful for any man to curse. Thomas reaches a different conclusion. First of all, he distinguishes different kinds of cursing, most of which are bad, and with intent being the key factor in judging them. And this leads him to this conclusion. Now, evil may be spoken by commanding or desiring it under the aspect of a twofold good, sometimes under the aspect of just, and thus a judge lawfully curses a man whom he condemns to a just penalty. Thus, too, the church curses by pronouncing anathema. On the same way, the prophets in the scriptures sometimes call down evils on sinners, as though conforming their will to divine justice, although such like imprecation may be taken by way of foretelling. Sometimes evil is spoken under the aspect of useful, as when one wishes a sinner to suffer sickness or hindrance of some kind, either that he may himself reform, or at least that he may cease from harming others. End quote. And this is repeated in his specific reply to the objection I quoted earlier. He says, quote, To wish another man evil under the aspect of good is not opposed to the sentiment whereby one wishes him good simply. In fact, rather, it is in conformity therewith. Now, I can see what he's getting at, um, but this kind of rhetoric sounds disturbingly like Big Brother Ease. You know, war is peace, ignorance is strength, cursing is blessing. Evil in the service of good, 
is good. You might as well say lies in the service of truth are truth. And actually, medieval philosophers do say that, more or less, in defense of including fictional exempla and fables in preaching. Like I said, I see what Thomas is getting at, especially in the context of his scriptural examples. If you replace evil with just harm, it seems a lot less sinister. It's more like explaining how the common, if apocryphal, form of the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm, doesn't mean you can't perform surgery or amputate a limb or give someone chemo. It's about intent and perhaps the net effects of the specific harm you're causing versus the harm you're trying to prevent. But this kind of justification is one of those things that is ripe for abuse. It can sanction torturing suspected heretics. Even in the medical context, it's the logic of, if it's right for me to cut off your leg to save your life, then shouldn't it also be okay to kill a few prisoners in medical experiments in order to save thousands of lives in the larger community? But again, I'm drifting out of my territory. Our text today features a particularly prickly saint, St. Cuthbert, patron of Durham. I haven't done a statistical analysis, but my anecdotal recollection has me suspecting that Cuthbert might have performed more negative miracles than benign ones, or if not actually more, then he at least has an especially strong track record in the divine cursing department. Any Cuthbert experts out there, feel free to weigh in and correct me if you disagree. In our text today, we'll be catching up with the saint here, oh, about 300 years after his death, which, as we'll see, is no obstacle to him in keeping up an active role in the administration of his church. The account we'll hear comes from Simeon of Durham's Tract on the Origin and Progress of This the Church of Durham, which we've dipped into several times since the start of this show, um, but haven't actually heard from since episode 38, concerning men afflicted by snakes and some serpent lore from about two years ago. We open with an account of the brief episcopate of Sexelm, Bishop of Durham, in the mid-10th century. This passage lays some groundwork for the main selection, which dates to almost exactly 100 years later at the start of the reign of Edward the Confessor. So, we'll open with a short bit on Sexelm, and then jump ahead a few pages in Simeon's history to the mid-11th century. Upon the death of Bishop Uhtred, Sexhelm was ordained in his room, but after having resided for only a few months in his church, he fled from it, having been expelled by St. Cuthbert. He had widely departed from the precedent of those who had gone before him, and had been driven by his avarice to oppress the people who belonged to the saint and those who were serving in his church. Whereupon the saint terrified him by a dream, and commanded him to depart with all possible speed. Whilst he lingered, the saint appeared to him on the second night, and having rebuked him more severely, ordered him to leave the place forthwith, threatening him with punishment if he tarried any longer. But not even yet was he obedient, whereupon a third manifestation was made to him, more urgent than any of the former, 
and he was commanded to hasten his departure at once and to beware how he carried off with him any of the property of the church. He was also given to understand that if he hesitated, death was impending over him. Upon awakening from his sleep, he was seized with illness, and in order to save his life, he hurriedly departed, although laboring under this attack of sickness. But as soon as he reached York in his flight, his health was restored to him. His successor in the Episcopal See was Aldred. And now we skip ahead in the Chronicle to the mid-11th century. In this year, that is to say, in the year of our Lord's Incarnation 1042, the king himself died and was succeeded on his throne by the most pious Edward, the son of King Athelrad and Emma. The See of Durham was obtained by that same Egoric, of whom mention has already been made. Seward, having put to death Earl Aidwolf, governed the earldom of the whole province of Northumbria from the Humber to the Tweed. But in the third year after he had succeeded to the episcopate, Egoric was expelled from the church by the clerks because he was a stranger. Whereupon he betook himself to Earl Seward and, by a bribe, secured his favor and aid against these obstinate people. Terrified and awed by the apprehension of his power, they were constrained to be reconciled to the bishop, whether they would or not, and to readmit him into his episcopal see. The bishop had with him a monk named Egelwin, a brother of his own, who took the management of the whole bishopric under him, along with whom there were some other monks, all of whom joined with the bishop in studying how to plunder the church of her money and ornaments and to carry them away. The bishop thought fit to pull down the wooden church at Cunichester, which we now corruptly call Chester, and to build there another of stone, because the body of the blessed Cuthbert had for some time remained in that place. So when they had dug to some depth, a great treasure was discovered there, which, as it was reported, the sacrist and a few others along with him had hidden a long time previously, in consequence of the tyranny of Sexhelm, of whom we have made mention above. The bishop laid hands upon the money and transmitted it to the monastery whence he himself had come, it being his firm intention to follow it thither in person, for his plan was to send before him a quantity of gold and silver and other articles which he had removed from the church, and then to resign his bishopric, substituting his brother Egelwin in his place. By these means, Egelwin was elevated to the episcopate in the fifteenth year of the reign of that most pious King Edward by the assistance and favor of Earl Tosti, who had succeeded Seward, and Egelric, after having been bishop for fifteen years, returned to his own monastery. And he employed the money, of which we have already spoken, in constructing through the finny regions roads of stone and wood, and churches, and many other things. But afterwards, during the reign of William, he was accused before him of having taken much money from the Church of Durham, and refusing to refund it, he was conducted to London, and there imprisoned, and he died whilst in the king's custody. Whilst this man was bishop, an unusual incident occurred, showing by an awful example how God's certain anger hangs over the ministers of the altar if they dare to approach that holy mystery without chastity. 
for there was a certain priest named Feoker, whose dwelling, where he had a church, was at no great distance from the city. But, as he had a wife, the life which he led was unworthy of the priestly office. One day, a large assembly, as well of nobles as of private individuals, met together early in the morning at this place, there to hold some law pleadings, before the commencement of which they entreated the priest to celebrate Mass for them. Having slept with his wife that night, he was afraid to approach the office of the altar, and refused to do so. But as they urged him, once, and again, and even the third time, to celebrate Mass for them, the priest was in a dilemma. Shame urged him on one side, and apprehension held him back on the other. If, on the one hand, he refused, he was afraid of giving cause for suspicion. If he consented, he was apprehensive of incurring the judgment of a just God. In the end, however, the fear of man was stronger than the fear of God, and so he celebrated Mass. But at the time when he ought to have received the Holy Mysteries, looking into the chalice, he saw that portion of the Lord's body, which, according to custom, he had put therein, changed, along with the blood, into a most revolting aspect. And, as he afterwards confessed, that which he saw rather resembled the color of pitch than of bread and wine. The priest, hereupon understanding his crime, began to grow pale and to tremble as if he already felt himself consigned to the avenging flames. Moreover, he was in great trouble as to what course he should adopt for the disposal of that which he perceived within the chalice. He shuddered at the thought of receiving it as if it were his own death. He would gladly have cast it upon the earth, but this he was afraid to do since it was consecrated. Having come to the conclusion that whatever he did, he could not escape the judgment of the Almighty, he received it with great fear and trembling, but such was its bitterness that nothing could be more bitter. No sooner was the Mass ended than he mounted his horse and hurried off to the bishop and throwing himself at his feet, he related the whole of the circumstances. Penance was enjoined him by the bishop, who gave him in command that, if he would obtain God's favor, it should be his study from that time forward to lead a life of severe chastity. This he willingly promised to do, and the promise which he had made he faithfully kept, spending the residue of his life in chastity and religion. That these events occurred, as we have narrated them, rests upon the frequently repeated authority of the son of this same presbyter, and two of the bishop's chaplains, who afterwards were inmates of this church, having assumed the monastic garb, and their informant was the presbyter himself. So, there we have one direct example of divine punishment as St. Cuthbert drives off the unworthy Bishop Sexelm and makes him very sick. Then, Cuthbert is curiously absent as Egelric and Egelwin work together to despoil Durham of its possessions, uh, though some kind of justice apparently catches up with Egelric when he dies as a prisoner of William the Conqueror. And finally, we have the case of the married priest whose divine chastisement best actually matches the more positive spin on what Thomas Aquinas was talking about 
in that it was an unpleasant experience, a harm that produced heartfelt reform. Uh, Except in this story, it's not really a curse. Uh, It's more just straightforward divine punishment without any human agent issuing the condemnation. Construing harmful events as divine punishment is, of course, also a way of validating one's own moral judgments. Go figure, it's the people you've already decided are bad whose misfortunes must have come from God. In today's text, we might be seeing a bit of Simeon's own local prejudice in the representation of the brothers Egelric and Egelwyn. According to one early scholar of Durham, William Hutchinson, Simeon is rather unfair in his characterization. Quote, he, Egelric, came to the sea when the prerogative of the crown was extended beyond the ancient limits which protected the privileges of the subject, and, conceiving he did no injury to his church in employing the accidental riches he recovered in public works out of the territories of St. Cuthbert, his life seems not to merit the condemnation it is branded with. Amidst the vexatious wranglings of his diffident clergy, it is no surprise he committed the government of the see to others, without any motives from indolence and supineness. His abdication was not an act worthy of great censure, considering he was only retiring from confusion and all those distractions which arose in an enmity and opposition such as gained ascendancy in that religious society. End quote. In other words, Simeon may be projecting onto the hapless bishop the deeper institutional dysfunction of the Durham community at the time. Hutchinson also has an interesting note on the buried treasure. He writes, quote, Simeon adds that when the workpeople were laying a deep foundation for the new church at Chester, a very great treasure was discovered, hidden, as it was presumed, by the officers of the avaricious Bishop Sexelm, who, being obliged to abscond, left it there. But it is more probable that it was a more ancient concealment, when Chester was a place of strength, and this appears to have been the case. For the bishop, looking upon the treasure as no part of the possessions of the church, but as a treasure trove within his domain, sent it to his monastery of Peterborough, then conceiving an intention of retiring thither himself. Had it consisted of sacred things, or of money of the currency of Sexelm's time, there would have been some better account of it. End quote. He also appends a law from the time of Edward the Confessor, which states, quote, All treasure trove belongs to the king, unless it is found in a church or churchyard. In that case, the gold is the king's, the silver is to be divided in moieties, to the crown one, to the church the other. End quote. So, if anything, it sounds like Egoric's real offense may not have been in taking what was due to the church, but rather what was due to the king, which might go some way to explaining his eventually rotting away in the king's dungeon. And it's not just the modern eye of Hutchinson that recognizes some local bias against Egoric in Durham. Other medieval chroniclers perceived his episcopacy differently. Here's what's said of him in the Chronicle of Crowland Abbey by its abbot Ingolf, or someone impersonating Ingolf. Uh, I cover that issue in episode 5 concerning the burning of Crowland Abbey, which I also mentioned recently in connection to the fire at Notre Dame. Anyway, uh, here's what Ingolf, or pseudo-Ingolf, writes about Egelric. In this year also, Egelric, a monk of Peterborough, was at the instance of Earl Godwin created Bishop of Durham. This bishop, having acquired vast wealth, 
caused to be constructed of beams of wood and sand through the middle of a very extensive forest and deep marshes from deeping to spalding, a firm and hard road. A very useful and expensive undertaking, which now possesses and will retain so long as it lasts, the name of Egelric, its maker. That is to say, the name Eldritchroda, a work for which he received the thanks of the whole of the Girvii and the Middle Angles, while, on the other hand, it was condemned by the inhabitants of Durham. Egelric, having replenished his purse, gave up his bishopric, returned to Peterborough, and resigned his ring to Egelwin, his brother, and a monk of that monastery, who in turn was at the request of Earl Godwin, made bishop, and has continued in that office to the present day. So, do you defer to local knowledge and accept Simeon's version, or do you recognize that local knowledge can also be local prejudice and take Simeon with a grain of salt? Or, on the other hand, is it preferable to trust the author whose identity we're pretty certain of over one whose words might be, to an unknown degree, the product of a later forgery? It's a tricky question, though fortunately for all of us, I guess, no one's exactly demanding a definitive answer on the ethical status of Bishop Egelric. Moving on to the little miracle tale that concludes today's selection, this is a nice example of why married clergy posed a problem for the church and why the Roman church eventually prohibited clerical marriage. Uh, there's a fuller discussion of this issue in our episode 23 concerning some scandalous priests, etc., uh, if you want more details. But one way marriage creates problems for clergy is in all of the various requirements for ritual purity before administering a sacrament um, that go right back to Leviticus. One of those is abstention from sexual activity and contact, even lawful sex within marriage, usually for a whole day beforehand. This is what gets our priest in this story in trouble, and it's one of the main justifications for full-time clerical celibacy that the Catholic Church maintains to this day. And historically, these requirements haven't always been just for the priest. At different points in time, the basic expectations of ritual purity have been applied to those receiving the Eucharist as well. Today, these have largely been discarded in Catholicism. Uh, there is a notion that you should confess and receive absolution before taking communion, but there's some flexibility there, uh, and you're generally supposed to fast before receiving communion, but the definition of what constitutes a fast has been so relaxed as to hardly matter uh, within the normal context of going to Mass. Well, these sorts of restrictions do still matter a great deal to some people and to traditionalists, but as far as official church doctrine, ritual purity on the part of the layperson is largely a matter of being in the right mindset, rather than having enacted any specific practices or having honored specific prohibitions. As for this particular story, the only real observation I have to offer concerns the peculiar tone of this miracle. There is something of a vogue for Eucharistic miracles a bit after Simeon's day, uh, and these can be rather gruesome, with the host and the wine literally appearing as flesh and blood, but in those cases, they are still at least presumably the divine flesh and divine blood. They might be viscerally repulsive, but they're still glorified. In this story, we have the divine presence becoming vile and revolting, uh, that's not exactly how you expect it to work. 
Now, taking it symbolically, and particularly taking it as the perception of the unchaste priest, the metaphor works. Uh, it's not the flesh and blood of Christ that is vile and bitter. It's that act of commingling it with his own unclean being that is unwholesome and disgusting. Uh, as an idea, it works, like holy water burning a vampire. It's not that the holy water is vitriolic in itself, but rather the vampire's flesh reacts as though the blessed substance were an acid. But in the vampire example, the holy water still looks like holy water. It doesn't transform into some horrific bile that then does damage to evil. This is one of the miracles that works great as a bit of popular folklore and a good cautionary fable to scare some chastity into the clergy, but would probably give a serious systematic theologian like Aquinas a migraine. And to bring us full circle back to the subject of cursing, it occurs to me that one might hear an anecdote about an unchaste priest named Feoker and suspect that there's a bit of a dirty joke going on there. You don't have to stretch those Old English vowels very much to find a different reading of that name. But, despite the fact that it is a commonplace that our four-letter words all go back to the Anglo-Saxons, and indeed that part of the reason they are our expletives is because they were the low-status peasant words after the Norman Conquest and all that, well, that is pretty much the case for English's favorite word for defecation, but it does not appear to be true for the F-word. Now, it does feel very much like an Old English word, uh, but that's probably just because it's Germanic in origin. All the evidence points to it being a continental import from the Middle English period. So, if you've been dropping F-bombs with the idea that you're displaying proletarian pride with deep peasant roots, really, you're more likely to be following in the footsteps of fashionable dandies of the late medieval mercantile classes. Uh, wool merchants trading with the Dutch and such like. Indeed, the F-word might be one of our first truly bourgeois cuss words, middle-class pretension right to its core. And that is why true punks must study linguistics. Speaking of linguistics, it's time for our mystery word. So, we're up to W. And because of the pre-conquest narrative of our text, I wanted to go to Old English, and boy, W is a big letter for Old English. I copied out so many options. Uh, but I'm going to go with a relatively simple one that doesn't have a whole lot of etymological backstory, or future story either, uh, but it is relevant to Simeon's last little anecdote, and it has some interesting features. The word is weefgal. If you've had some exposure to Old English, then that first element should be pretty straightforward. It's weef, meaning woman, uh, which is where the word wife comes from. The phrase man and wife is just literally man and woman. I mean, historically, the undertone is a man and his woman, which is how weef gets subsumed into the specific marital state. Um, moving on, though, the second element, gall, means lust or wantonness or desire. So weefgal is woman lust, or really woman-lusty, since gall here functions as an adjective. It's basically the old English equivalent of girl-crazy, and might well describe an unchaste priest. At least, I think so. The other possibility is that it isn't about lust for women, but rather the lust of women, 
playing into the misogynist tropes of, well, female sexual wantonness and insatiability. There are a few other weef compounds that would support this latter understanding, such as one I love just for the sound of it, weef screwed, which just means women's clothing. Uh, you also have weef yamadla, or woman's fury. So on that model, woman's lust makes sense. Uh, but you also have weef luvu, which means love for a woman rather than a woman's love. And you have some other gall compounds, like wingal, meaning intoxicated, wine wantonness, uh, or the delightful rumgal, where rum means open space, uh, and which is where our word room comes from, uh, which is clearer in the adjective roomy than in the idea of a partition of a building. Uh, anyway, rumgal means rejoicing in the freedom of open space and is used in the Old English Genesis to describe the feelings of the dove when she's released from the ark. It's basically a word for the opposite of cabin fever. It's great. Anyway, those examples all lend support to Weefgal being lust experienced in respect to women, rather than the lust which is manifested by women. And those are all adjectival constructions, as Weefgal is... So I think that's definitely the definition with the strongest case for this little used word. In the only citation I see of it in the Old English corpus, it is used in a genderless plural in a phrase about marriage being preached to the wanton. So no real help there, alas. Before we conclude, I have one other announcement to make. Uh, I'm pleased to report that starting this August, I will be an assistant professor of English at Culver Stockton College in Canton, Missouri, on the banks of the presently unruly Mississippi River. It's a small department, so I'll be teaching a little bit of everything, including creative writing and early British and world literature. I'm very excited to start there, uh, and I also wanted to share the news to maybe offer some encouragement to anyone else who has spent one or two or more years on the academic job market, finding little but endless application forms and frustration. I honestly don't know if hang in there is the right message, uh, but at least it might not be the wrong message. Hang in there is a good message to someone submitting their creative work out into a world of rejections. It's not so good uh, to say to someone losing all their money at a slot machine, and at this point, I'm not entirely sure which of those two things the job market actually most resembles. Uh, but anyway, um, this good news also means that I'll be moving house in July and prepping several classes, uh, which are not ideal circumstances for recording podcasts. Uh, so the show will be taking a summer break through the month of July. I hope to start back up again in August, but I might have to see how ready for the semester I actually am after the move, uh, so we might have to wait until things have settled down a bit before regular episodes resume. Um, so, we will have one more episode here in June before the break, uh, and I will be working on another audiobook for our Patreon supporters during the hiatus. Uh, speaking of, you small but elite group of $5 a month donors... Right now, you can go to our Patreon page and vote on what that audiobook will be. Uh, so do take advantage of that before the polls close on June 25th. I'll be back before the end of the month with one more tale of a saintly smackdown, so to speak. Until then, may all your treasure troves remain unconfiscated by tyrannical abbots or the king. 
and thanks for listening.